Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. We are continuing our special December series this week, and on today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Nije Gupta. Nije received his PhD from the University of Durham, and he teaches New Testament courses at Northern Seminary. Nije is a prolific author, and he is currently working on a book about women in the New Testament to be published by InterVarsity Press, as well as a Galatians commentary for the Story of God series by Zondervan. Nije has an active blog called Crux Sola, and he is the co-host of the In Faith and Doubt podcast. Hi, Nije. Thank you so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. I'm really excited. Nije, you're my colleague now at Northern Seminary, but we've known each other for a while. We're two New Testament people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we kind of joke around that when you and me and Scott first started working on the Dictionary of Paul and his letters, second edition, we were all at different institutions. And, you know, by, by um, you know, divine providence, uh, now we're, we're together, which is, which is a wonderful experience. Yes, so much fun, so much fun. Um, well, today, I mean, you, you have published on just about everything there is to publish on topic-wise in the New Testament, which is awesome. Today, I'd love to focus on your uh, interaction with women in Scripture. Um, and I guess my first question is, what led you to focus so much on women in Scripture? Yeah, um, a lot of it comes out of my personal story. You know, I became a Christian in high school through um, through my brother. Uh, in college, I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ and other parachurch organizations. And, you know, as a young Christian um, coming from uh, rural Midwest, um, I had this particular image of what the Bible says about family, of what the Bible says about men and women. And it was very much a quote unquote traditional view um, of men lead, women follow and so forth. And, you know, that tracks kind of with an Asian heritage as well. And when I was in college, um, I didn't know theology. I didn't understand denominations. But um, what was kind of given to me by some of the organizations I worked with was the great heroes of the faith are John Piper and Wayne Grudem. I mean, that, that those names came up a lot. Uh, in, in college, the, if you want to be a theologian as a student, you know, this is at a secular school, you read cover to cover Grudem's systematic theology. That was like hardcore. I didn't quite do that, but I tried. Um, but those are, those are the people that, you know, that, that, uh, I looked up to because I didn't really know anything else and they were good. I mean, I read many of John Piper's books with great, uh, interest and delight. Um, but when I went to seminary then at Gordon Conwell, um, I, I went, you know, my, the, the idea, uh, of, I had in mind of what it meant to be serious about your faith was to be in a very conservative denomination and read their books and whatnot. So I was, I was actually went to an Orthodox Presbyterian church, which is on the most conservative end, one of towards the most conservative end of Presbyterian. And it wasn't until, um, I, uh, started interacting with students in seminary that were women. Cause my first impression was what I'd heard through the rumor mill. And I know this sounds terrible was, um, uh, don't interact with the female mass divinity students cause they're liberal. 
I could interact with the counseling students, but not the MDiv students because, you know, they're not tr trusting the Bible and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm glad you mentioned that, Nijay, because I think that is a common uh, assumption that I think still exists today. Yeah. And, and so I wrote my first systematic theology paper. I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed of this on why women should not be in ministry uh, as leaders. Um, and uh, I did very well in the paper, by the way. <laughs> uh, and I, you're supposed to present it to your peers and I got good feedback and this and that. Um, as I started interacting with students, I came to this realization. Uh, these students love Jesus. These students love scripture. These students know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, they aren't trying to tear down the faith. Um, they are just like me. <laughs> and I hate that that was an epiphany that I had to have, but it was. And so I met my wife, Amy, uh, in seminary, master divinity student. Uh, and, um, you know, we started, uh, spending time together. Um, and I remember one of my professors pulled me aside and said, don't let this woman take your faith down. Oh, and, wow. What did he mean? What did he mean? Uh, she, he means without knowing her, uh, he meant she's liberal because mm -hmm. she's a master of any student and she's mm -hmm. going to convince you of all kinds of wrong readings of the Bible related mm -hmm. to gender and sex and whatnot. So I, my second, third year, I thought I'm going to have to study this issue. I want to take this seriously. So I checked out every book from the library on the subject. I, I probably read dozens and dozens, maybe 60, 70 books. Uh, R.T. France, Gordon Fee, Craig Keener, Ben Witherington, Linda Belleville, um, some of the Two Views books. I mean, I devoured as much as I possibly could. Um, and I wrote my third year systematic theology paper on why women should be pastors in ministry. <laughs> um, I did well on that one as well. Um, but uh, what I ended up realizing is um, our teachers and our preachers shape the way we look at the Bible. Um, and I just taught a course at Northern Seminary Women in the New Testament uh, earlier this year. Students ask me over and over again, when I talk about all the women uh, that are doing ministry in the New Testament, what I consider front lines ministry, Yodian, Syntyche, Phoebe, you know, Tryphena, Tryphosa, all these women, Nympha, people that we haven't even heard of, you know, uh, pos the possibility of Damaris being an early Christian uh, leader. And then the students ask, how did I never hear this before? And it struck me, our teachers frame and shape the way we look at leadership, the way we look at men and women, all these things. And we, we, can, we can resign things to the shadows. Um, and it, it kind of struck me just the power behind the way we frame and shape things. Um, so uh, uh, I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, there was a professor coming to Gordon-Conwell and I wanted to study, I wanted to be his TA. His name is Colin Nickel. And uh, I applied, you know, we wrote applications. I applied and my application got rejected. So it ended up in the recycling bin. This was paper back then. Yes. Uh, Catherine Crager pulled my application out of the recycling bin and emailed me. And she said, would you like to be my TA? And I thought, and this was in sort of the turning point of my journey. And so I thought, sure. I mean, everything I'd heard from the, you know, the PCA camp told me don't work with Catherine Crager. <laughs> because she, but she's a nice person. She's wonderful. Yeah. She's the found one of the founders of uh, Christian biblical equality, but their impression was she must be, you know, off the charts liberal. 
Uh, and, but, but I just had a wonderful time with her. I went in kind of unclear about, you know, okay, am I comfortable working with her? She was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I did an independent study on patristic Greek with her. She's brilliant. She sight reads patristic Greek. She sight reads Septuagint Greek. She sight reads classical Greek. She, she did. She's passed away now. Anyway, I went through this long journey and I, I look back with some shame on the, not what I believed before, but the fact that what I believed did not have a strong foundation before. And well, I just kind of inherited a package of beliefs because I liked John Piper, because I liked, uh, you know, Wayne Grudem and some of these people that I admired because I liked the things they're saying about missions or loving God or being uh, faithful to scripture or a high Christology. I just kind of took everything for granted, everything else they talked about. Can, you know, one of the things that I experienced as what would probably be labeled in your context as you're talking about a liberal woman um, was that uh, things moved pretty quickly from let's talk about exegetical technique and historical context to um, a, a more evaluation of my um, morals or what I was up to, or sort of a, a question about my character, right. you know, that that's what happened rather than, well, let's open scripture and let's actually just look at what we're finding here. Yeah. And, and a lot of this goes with, um, you know, long held stereotypes, you know, so, so there's something I introduced to my students called the ontology question. Uh, we, we have, to, when we talk about men and women in scripture, people might say things like, um, it's a divine mystery why God let men lead. You know, I'm like the Trinity's divine mystery, but on ethics, we need to know why we do the things that we do. Um, if God said, you know, kill, you know, kill my son, right. I would want to know why. <laughs> That's really important to me. Uh, I can't answer the the famous Akedah question with with uh, Abraham and Isaac, but I know that if if God's calling me to do something that could be immoral, I, I need to know no. I need to know why. So when it comes to the ontology question, I, I you know when I'm talking to people that I might disagree with, I'll say there has to be some deficiency in women in order to make the case they can't do X, Y, and Z. And so then you kind of get into this bind where you have to say women are gullible or women, you know, this and that and the other. And then, you know, and then you run into people like uh, Mary Beard uh, or Kamala Harris or my wife. And, uh, you know, when it comes to like buck stops here sorts of things, like my wife is older than me. She is brilliant. Uh, she is, you know, a very quick thinker. She's a great decision maker. Um, that doesn't make me in any way a lesser man, but it does mean that we divide up household responsibilities according to who's just better at it. Um, and, and so for example, I, I do all the cooking, almost all the cooking in our house and she does a lot of the yard work cause she loves it. And so anyway, the ontology question is huge. And I, in seminary, that was probably one of the biggest things that, that I had to reckon with is when I encountered, uh, women who were clearly intelligent, brave, uh, independent, um, faithful to God. I had to say, uh, you know, who, who's going to stop God from using this person? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are, um, you're coming out with a book called maybe called tentative title, <laughs> hidden Christian, uh, figures, 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 yeah. figures yeah. um, 
Yeah, um, that'll be coming out hopefully 2023, maybe a little earlier on uh, women in the New Testament. But you're yeah. also working on um, a Galatians commentary for the Story of God series. Right. And uh, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm thinking about Galatians 3.28. And that yeah. may have something... Uh, to say uh, for all of this, what did you what did you discover with yeah. Galatians three twenty eight? Yeah, so Galatians three twenty eight famously talks about Paul saying, you know, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. Uh, what I discovered is this is used wrongly in two ways, uh, two opposite ways. Uh, one way is uh, it's used as some kind of civil rights manifesto. Um, and the problem with that is culturally and, uh, you know, in terms of cultural evolution, uh, Paul just wasn't there. Um, you know, when you look at the household codes, he's telling slaves to be good slaves. Um, when he's talking to Onesimus, he's saying, go home, you know, back to your slave master. So uh, it, it is the mass in a manifesto on abolition. It's not a manifesto on civil rights. I don't think those things were in Paul's mind, not because he was hard hearted or anything like that, but because he had a specific purpose within the context of Galatians uh, about what he wanted to see happen and specifically what he wanted to see happen in the church. We'll get in a minute to that. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people say, oh, Paul's talking about salvation. He's not talking about social dynamics. Uh, that's not actually true. Because he's talking about circumcision. He's talking about if you bite and devour one another, right? He's talking about love. You know, he's talking about cruciformity. He's talking about um, treating our leaders with respect, you know, in chapter six. Um, so to say in some way it's quote unquote spiritual and not practical, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of Paul. Um, so when people say, oh, he's just saying equal chance of salvation, that actually wasn't the problem behind Galatians. Uh, the problem was privilege. I'd point to a book uh, by John Barclay, Paul and the Gift, which really uh, marries theology and sociology. Uh, I call it a theology of social economics, um, how we place value on people. And if Paul's saying, hey, everyone is equally valuable, that's going to matter in how we treat people. Um, so. Uh, what is Paul saying there? I think he does have radical ideas that are going to push against Roman uh, values uh, about uh, who's the most, most worthwhile person in the room. So, for example, at a traditional Roman party, uh, you walk in the party and you basically size up the room according to most important to least important. Right. And your job is to get in the good graces from the top. Um, and Paul does subvert that throughout Galatians, throughout his letters, but especially in 328, he's saying, um, when you go into a room, you're blind in Christ, you're blind and you cannot see social worth according to Roman values, Romanized values. Uh, that's radical. That is radical. Um, and so as many scholars have said, Paul doesn't advocate for abolition, but he sows the seed here. Uh, he lights the fire uh, that that will <laughs> slow burn, <laughs> albeit a slow burn. <laughs> uh, he lights the fire. What I've told people before, and this is speculation, but I don't think Paul himself was an egalitarian in the way that we think of egalitarianism today. How could he be, you know, in that time and age? 
What I think, though, is um, the wheels were turning, right? God's given him these foundation-shattering truths. Um, and I would say if we could transport Paul to today and walk him through Northern Seminary, walk him through some of these churches that have beautiful uh, equal ministry, equal marriage uh, uh, relationships, I think he'd say, I, I, I see I see it. I do see it. Um, I don't. I don't think he was there then. You know, I, Scott McKnight talks about Paul being blind to the evils of slavery. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what was going on there, but I like to liken it to you know, my daughter had cancer. She went through chemotherapy. Uh, right now, all we have is chemotherapy, uh, and it's horrible. It's terrible. It's poison. Right? We're poisoning our children uh, when we give them chemotherapy, but it's the best we have. And we can hope and dream for something better. And we can even kind of anticipate it, but we have no clue what that is. At least I don't know what it is. I kind of feel that way about Paul, that uh, he knew something was possible, um, but he couldn't imagine it. And that's and, just and the limitation of a human. That's right. And he couldn't implement it even if he did imagine it. Because yeah, everybody, right. you're, we all, like you mentioned with that medical analogy, I mean, it we have only what we have right now to right. to do what we can yeah well in um the in thinking about the radicalness of what paul was doing i think sometimes you're right we we try to domesticate uh him and uh i i think there's probably no more domesticated figure in scripture than mary the mother of jesus <laughs> Right, right. Uh, and I know that you you have talked a lot about Mary's actually doing some really good theology and, yeah. and is a disciple we should follow. But we just kind of we pull her out of of the uh, of the closet of the Christmas closet once a year and kind of dust her off and put a baby in her arms and that's it. But what is Mary really doing? How should we understand Mary in Scripture? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is each gospel handles Mary Lubba differently. Um, and, and some, some of the gospels have been criticized for, um, kind of giving Mary a backseat. Um, Matthew, I think in particular, um, John does some interesting things with Mary, but, uh, Luke is, Luke is an ex extraordinary text. Um, you know, my, my undergraduate degree, I, I, I studied classics, uh, as one of my majors and, um, ancient texts, uh, don't feature women, generally speaking. Um, women get very little airtime. They're often stereotyped. Um, you know, you have goddesses that may, you know, have virtue like Athena and things like that, but human characters are often typecast. Uh, they're stereotyped. Uh, Luke is almost out of place, almost anachronistic in the amount of interest Luke has in the lives and words of women. Even the way Luke begins is bizarrely focused on women in a way that I can't imagine another text from the ancient world uh, that, that uh, is so patiently attentive to the voices of women. And, and again, this is one of those framing things. Why have I never thought of this before? Why did this never occur to me when I was in college or early seminary? Um, but just someone, I think I remember reading somewhere that the, um, the Magnificat is the longest or in the top 
two or three longest speeches, not by Jesus in the gospels. Um, and so just quote unquote airtime is pretty incredible. Um, and so I remember getting into a fight on Facebook. I try not to get in fights on Facebook anymore, but this was five, <laughs> six, seven years ago. But I got to a fight with one of my friends from high school who was basically saying women uh, don't contribute anything uh, in the in the Bible, essentially, that that isn't said by a man or said better by a man. And uh, I got baited into debating him. Uh, but um, it led me to think about that. So it was a good experience to think about that. And uh, what came to mind was the Magnificat um, because I just read Joel Green's uh, little book called Why Salvation. And he gives a huge amount of space to the Magnificat in that. And here you have uh, this song by Mary. And I think I remember Bonhoeffer saying something like, this isn't a cutesy, sweet, uh, you know, Shirley Temple kind of dancing, prancing song. This is a battle hymn. Um, I think Bonhoeffer says something along those lines. And as I researched this for an article and, and for my book now, uh, it actually parallels a couple things from scripture, including Mary's Miriam's uh, song uh, uh, in Exodus. But I think a little bit uh, more poignantly, Deborah's uh, song uh, in Judges, Judges 5, I think. And I think that a uh, attentive Jewish uh, reader or, or a reader that knew uh, Israel scripture would pick up on that. And so these are uh, uh, violent, they're violent songs. Um, you know, I, I just preached on this text to uh, our youth group, which my wife is a youth pa pastor of, and it was almost gave me chills to read uh, to introduce to these teenagers uh, and, and middle schoolers this notion that Mary has this baby and we think of this baby as sweet and baby Jesus and, you know, all cuddly and sweet. And Mary's saying things like God is going to pull the rich down from, pull, pull the powerful down from their thrones and send the rich away hungry. And I remember saying to them, um, why isn't God just lifting everybody up? Why isn't God just filling everybody? Like he has stuff to do. The toppling of kingdoms is a pretty aggressive business. And this is coming out of the mouth of a young woman, a young woman that the ancient world would treat as insignificant. And so Luke is extraordinarily thoughtful in the way that he um, amplifies Mary's very young voice for those with ears to hear, because she's nowhere when she says this, she's not on the top of the temple, right? She's not, uh, you know, talking to the Sanhedrin. Uh, so this is a very much for those with ears to hear message being broadcast through Luke. Um, and so I landed on that as, okay, I get this from green, but he says, this is the gospel. This is the way you're supposed to read the rest of the gospel of Luke. This is chapter one. You're supposed to read everything that happens from there on out through the lens of Mary's song. And when you do that, you realize she's kind of a co-narrator of the gospel in some ways, um, or at least the most important vocal figure other than Jesus. Right, right. Um, what would be one or two things that reading Luke that way um, became very highlighted for you that you hadn't seen before? 
I mean, an obvious one would just be um, uh, the lives of women uh, and, and particularly the independence of women, uh, women who are doing things without a man around. So, for example, um, you have uh, the women who are traveling with Jesus. So, I, you know, I wrote a chapter in the book on, you know, did Jesus have women disciples? And I would have told you 15 years ago, no. People will talk about the 12, the 12, the 12. Um, uh, Jesus is going around racking up bills. And guess who's pulling out their Chase Sapphire card? <laughs> it's these women, right? And then there's this interesting moment where the angels say to the women at the end, uh, don't you know? Right? And then he, they go on and explain, you know, he was going to suffer. And that's a message that we learned that Jesus told the men. Uh, but that means the women were also there because they are responsible for this teaching. Um, so, so there are these kind of clues. Uh, another moment is the famous story of Jesus um, uh, going to Mary, Mary and Martha's uh, house in Luke, uh, the Lucan version. Uh, and uh, something, again, this is like, why aren't we asking these questions? But a lot of this is understanding the Roman world. Um, where are the men in this story? There's some interesting art pieces on how they depict this encounter are men there or are men not are men not there? First thing to notice is I think Martha invites Jesus to her home. That's the role of the Paterfamilias. Where is this guy? He might not exist. She might be the head of household. We don't know. But the idea of her extending hospitality to Jesus is a big deal. It's not like, hey, come over for a bagel. This is like a dinner party kind of invitation. It's a big deal. She's extending this invitation. No men appear in the story. That in and of itself is unusual. I mean, we get this in with Lydia in the in the book of Acts, uh, which is another Lucan uh, story uh, where, where Lydia extends hospitality. Um, but I think just these independent women, um, this is un, unusual. Uh, and Luke sets us up for that. Uh, in some ways with with uh, Mary and Elizabeth. And the, uh, you mentioned that you talked about Mary and her Magnificat to your um, church's youth, uh, youth group. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you celebrate Christmas mm -hmm. uh, even now uh, as a family. You mentioned your wife is a pastor. And I, I know also that uh, you grew up in a Hindu household. So yeah. you're, you're not bringing uh, Christmas traditions from your own family uh, into, into your family now. But could you talk a little bit about um, how, how you do Christmas now, maybe in, in comparison with how you grew up and, and, and with your knowledge of, of the biblical text now, how, how yeah. do you just manage? I mean, there's so many <laughs> ways yeah, yeah, you can yeah. take my question. So take it however you like. <laughs> yeah, you know, growing up, my own parents are Hindu. We had a tree, we had a tree. I remember that. And we had a fake tree with the fake white, you know, white snow on it. Um, and it smelled like vinegar. It was, it was awful, but it was nice to have a tree. <laughs> uh, we had presents, um, not always wrapped because we just, uh, didn't care one way or another, but, um, we liked the present part. I remember that, uh, we didn't have any Christmas traditions. You know, I think my parents as immigrants, um, they wanted to celebrate American holidays. Um, I remember one year we tried to do the traditional American Thanksgiving dinner 
and my mom, uh, who's doesn't eat meat, uh, made a turkey. And I remember she put cranberries, the, the can of cranberry sauce, you know, on a plate. And we all said, what do we do with that? She's like, I don't know. So it just sat there the whole meal. Nobody ate it. <laughs> but uh, for Christmas, um, yeah, we didn't really have traditions. I, I didn't, growing up, I didn't really think about what Christmas was about, except that this is what Americans do at this time of year. And there's some religious tr- connection, birth of Jesus, you know, I you know, um, didn't, didn't seem to matter even to the Christians that it was a religious holiday uh, as much as a corporate uh, holiday, uh, a shopping holiday. Now, I think because I became a Christian, you know, uh, you know, I I wasn't born into a Christian family. I think I really care a lot about the holiday having meaning um, and uh, and being a part of the church calendar rather than a part of the um, business calendar, so to speak. Uh, My wife gets frustrated because. I get really upset about the commercialization of Christmas. Um, I'm kind of a, a Grinch when it comes to anything Santa related. Uh, I don't like anything Santa related. I don't like non-religious Christmas songs. So that makes me a little bit of a Christmas humbug. It does. It actually, I am not going to invite you to my Christmas party. That's it. <laughs> that's probably a good idea. I'm a little, I'm a little <laughs> bit of a, of a grump on that. I think that's because I look back and I think, how many years of my life I missed out on knowing Jesus. Sorry. (laughs) Surprisingly touched by that. Um, So it's a really beautiful thing for me to be able to celebrate with my kids, you know, who are young. And I, I, you know, we started a little bit of a tradition of watching uh, the chosen or some episodes of the chosen. Um, I think what I want for my kids, I don't know if we have really, you know, strict traditions, but what I want is that Christmas is, um, obviously it's about Jesus, but what I really want to communicate to my kids is Christmas is about a long, a long-term plan that God has had to express his love. Um, it's not this new thing that, you know, he just, I'm going to send Jesus. Um, it's, it's, it's a key turning point in, in God's long-term plan to love, love his creatures. And so, um, you know, what I would want for them is to be able to read those Christmas stories and look back at the old Testament and see what God's been up to all along. Um, if they could make those connections, um, one of my favorite hymns is come thou long expected Jesus. And, um, I mean, that, that, that's it, right? I mean, that's, that's, you know, right now we're in the pandemic and we're longing, right, for the end. And I think about Hebrews where it says Abraham, you know, saw the promise and greeted it from afar, right? It's like he's waving into a portal to the future. And in a sense, he's waving at Jesus. And um, so if, if my kids can, if I can help get them to a place uh, you know, I just ended a, I just ended a, a quarter's course on teaching on uh, Paul's theology of love. And a big part of that course was seeing God's love uh, that begins with creation, but that especially happens through through the choice of Israel. Um, if if Christmas can become that to know to know God's deep love, um, that that makes that makes for a good Christmas for me. Oh, 
that's so beautifully said, Nije, and I wish that for for everyone. Mm. Now, I don't know if you watch uh, Christmas uh, Carol or Scrooge, yeah. but I do think a tiny Tim there. God bless yeah. us, everyone, right? <laughs> that, that that everyone could could feel that love of God and know that surety that uh, that God. Um, this has been God's plan and hope all, all along. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar and just sharing with us your, your love of scripture, your love of the true meaning of Christmas. That's right. And, uh, and, and uh, we look forward to seeing your books coming out. Uh, women, the, the one on women in the New Testament early church will be coming out with IVP, probably hidden Christian features. Figures, yeah. Figures, sorry, yes, yeah. figures. And uh, and then your um, Galatians commentary in the Story of God commentary. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us again. And uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Nijay Gupta, check out the links in today's episode description to explore his books, podcast, and blog. Next week, we will conclude our December series with a special Christmas conversation with our very own Dr. Lynn Kohek. Make sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when we upload new episodes every Tuesday. Merry Christmas, Alabaster Jar listeners.